promise of the gospel in every worship service that God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins, so that in Him we may be made clean. And that's our hope and our comfort every time as we worship our God. Having heard God's good promises then, let's now open the Word of God that He may speak to us. Our scripture reading comes from 2 Kings chapter 14. Second Kings 14, and we'll read that entire chapter. In the second year of Joash, the son of Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father had done. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king, his father. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. He struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by storm and called it Jokthiel, which is its name to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon, sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You have indeed struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory and stay at home, for why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash king of Israel went up, and he and Amaziah king of Judah faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. And Jehoash king of Israel captured Amaziah king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for four hundred cubits from the, from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, and he returned to Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash that he did and all his might and how he fought with Amaziah king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel, and Jeroboam his son reigned in his place." Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived fifteen years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. 
Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was sixteen years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, and his might, how he fought, and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah in Israel, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son reigned in his place. So far from Second Kings 14. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 60, stanzas 1, 2, 4, and 5. There are, interestingly, enough uh, parallels in that psalm to this chapter that there is speculation among scholars that uh, Amaziah actually edited this psalm of David uh, to apply it also to his own situation, especially after attacking Edom and then experiencing defeat. Well, this chapter is also our text for this morning, Second Kings 14. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this, this is another tough chapter. Uh, it's tough for slightly different reasons than, than the last ones. When you read the chapter, I have to admit, it, it sounds and it reads a lot like the random chaos of history. It's like an account of history, um, and yet it, it seems random. You have, for example, a good king, Amaziah, a king who it says did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, who's defeated in battle by a stronger, more powerful, and evil king. Uh, And then afterwards, he's himself killed in conspiracy. Uh, You have two evil kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, that's Jehoash and Jeroboam II, who seem to prosper. So the good king falls in battle, or, or experiences defeat in battle, and then falls to conspiracy, Two evil kings seem to prosper. Uh, Jeroboam II reigns for 41 years, the longest that any king has ever reigned in the northern kingdom. Uh, And it even mentions the borders there, and they happen to be the same northern borders as the kingdom of Solomon. This is the biggest and most powerful and wealthiest the kingdom of Israel has ever been. 
Well, what are we supposed to learn from that? That, that good kings uh, fail and that evil kings prosper? Or are we supposed to learn that history is just chaotic and unpredictable? Uh, maybe the lesson to be learned here is that there are no lessons to be learned here. And, and it, it, it certainly almost seems that way. And the reality is that many Christians, uh, who though they confess the sovereignty of God, easily think about their life and about history in this way. Yeah, we confess that God rules over history, and we, we confess that also as we look to, say, Canadian history and world history, we say, yes, God rules over it, but we still think about history as somewhat random, somewhat chaotic. Well, that's not the lesson I don't believe that we're supposed to learn here. Uh, That wasn't the author's purpose, I don't believe, in writing this chapter down for us. Instead, if we are going to learn the, the lessons that the prophets had in mind as they wrote this, we will need to read this chapter with some wisdom and also in the context of the larger story of, of Judah and Israel. Uh, for one thing, we need to remember that as we read about these kings, we are still waiting for the king that was promised by God to David. The king uh, who, who, like David, was a man after God's own heart. We're still waiting for that king. Uh, we're waiting for a king who's devoted to God. And that king has not come. And, and the, even the introductory verses of this chapter make it clear, uh, as, as you start to look at Amaziah, he's not that king. It says, he, yes, he did what was right, but not like David his father. Well, that matters. That should affect what we expect to see in this chapter. Uh, furthermore, it mentions the high places were still not taken away. It says that every single chapter, as it deals with every king, it says they didn't remove the high places. Well, that matters. That's part of the larger story that we're dealing with here. Uh, and uh, we also learn that the prophets were still active. We read about a couple of them. It even mentions Jonah, the same as the author of the, the uh, or, or the, the main character in the book of Jonah. That matters too. So we see God is still at work. Uh, he hasn't left his people altogether. Uh, and, and so as hard as it may seem initially to read this chapter and, and learn something from it, we are nonetheless called to, to stop, to reflect, to ask What's going on here? What's God doing here? And to recognize the hand of God, even in a chaotic, unpredictable chapter like this one. And that's really where the lesson is to be learned, in discerning the hand of God. Uh, I put it this way, the heart that is oriented to God and is devoted to him like David's was. There's an allusion at the beginning to David's heart. The heart that's oriented to God, attuned, as it were, to the will of God, will recognize the hand of God and the purposes of God in his or her life. The heart that's attuned to the will of God will recognize the hand of God. Uh, Tune your heart to God and you will begin to see the hand of God and the will of God in your life. Fail to do so. Fail to tune your heart to the will of God. And you may yet do many things right, but you will stumble around. Life will be chaotic and meaningless and you will be ensnared by follies on every side. The difference between wisdom and folly. The difference between sight and 
And blindness is whether one's heart is properly attuned to the will of God. That's uh, my thesis as we consider this chapter. Now, let me start by just laying out some of the basic facts. So, verses 1 to 7 give us the introduction. In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He's 25 years old, uh, and he reigned 29 years. His mother was Jehoadin of Jerusalem. And, verse 3, he did what was right... In the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father, he did in all things as Joash his father had done. You remember Joash, the boy king who grew up in the temple and ended up turning against God, even having uh, his, his adopted brother killed for speaking the word of God to him. Here it says, he did in all things like Joash his father had done. It adds further, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Now, if you remember the the story of Joash, uh, his father, Joash was assassinated at the very end of his life. Well, obviously, uh, at the end of of that chapter, he was assassinated. Uh, So his assassination would have precipitated... A a power crisis in Judah. When a king is assassinated, there's a vacuum of of power. Um, And so it says, as soon as Amaziah had the royal power firmly in his hand, that that would say that there must have been a struggle at the beginning um, that that he, as Joash's son, would remain in power. Uh, But he succeeds in that, and it says, as soon as he did, he executed the assassins of his father. That, That tells us that he himself was probably not involved in the assassination um, if he has the, the assassins executed. Now, you could speculate. You could say, well, maybe he's really tricky and cunning and he actually uh, you know, cooperated with the assassination and then had them killed for it so everyone would think he's, he's innocent. That's possible. Uh, but it does say he did, for the most part, what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So we can assume that That's not what's going on here. Uh, It's interesting when you get to the next chapter, because Amaziah is also assassinated, and his son doesn't put to death the assassins, uh, which may suggest uh, some cooperation, uh, some complicity in in that uh, assassination. Now, there's a very interesting and a very hopeful note here about Amaziah, because it says he didn't put the children of the assassins to death. Um, and it specifically says, because the law of Moses told him not to, uh, that, that only the guilty party should die and not their children. Now, um, that might not sound impressive to you. You're like, this, the one redeeming feature he has is he doesn't kill inno- these innocent children, um, as if who would actually do that. But that was actually the normal and accepted practice in the ancient Near East. Uh, when there was an assassination, you would wipe out not only the family, but also the extended family of, of the assassins. Uh, that was not only to prevent such a thing from ever happening, but also to prevent a blood feud. Uh, that there would n- then not be these children that would one day take revenge back on you. So you would just wipe that entire family out. Uh, he doesn't do that, and it specifically credits that to his obedience to the law of Moses. It wasn't just because he felt bad for the kids. Uh, it's because he wanted to obey the law of Moses. So that, that also gives us some hope about this king. Now, 
politically speaking, probably the most significant thing, the thing that he would have been known for in his reign would have been his conquest over Edom. Now, Edom is the neighboring country on the other side of the Jordan to Judah. So you've got Israel in the north on this side of the Jordan, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Across the Jordan, you've Moab in the north, Edom in the south. So they're their next-door neighbors, um, and there was always strife and battle between them. And it says, He struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by storm and called it Jachiel, which is its name to this day. Uh, if you read the account in Second Chronicles, that's chapter 25, that uh, tells the story of Amaziah's reign, it, it actually tells a more bloody story. It says on top of these 10,000 that he killed in battle, he also took captive another 10,000 and had them taken to a nearby cliff and, and thrown off. Uh, no Geneva conventions uh, were, were in effect in those days. But that's also where things start to go wrong in Amaziah's life. Uh, Evidently, it seems Amaziah's victory over Edom got to his head. Uh, And he decided to provoke Israel to war as well. So verse 8, it says, Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. Now, that's a formal challenge to war. That's not just let's you know, meet together for diplomacy. It's a challenge to war, and you can tell that because that's immediately how, how uh, the king of Israel responds. It's kind of like guys sometimes say, you, know, you want to come say that to my face? Um, and everyone knows that's not an invitation to just come nearer. Um, that's that's a, a challenge to a fight. Uh, now, there's a whole backstory here that's not told in, in this chapter. It's told in Second Chronicles it does explain why Amaziah wanted to fight Jehoash. So what happened is when Amaziah went to war against Edom, he had 300,000 of his own soldiers. And he decided that wasn't quite enough, and so he hired another 100,000 mercenaries from Israel. Uh, So now he's got an army of 400,000. He heads north to Edom. And as he's going, a prophet of the Lord confronted him and said, I'm not going to give victory to Israel. So you need to send those 100,000 mercenaries back home. Uh, Which uh, turned out to be a fairly good deal for those mercenaries because Amaziah says to the prophet, he says, what do I do with these men? I've already paid them. Uh, but the prophet says, don't worry about it, send them home. So he sends these 100,000 mercenaries home. Uh, but evidently, they took it personal. Uh, they, were, they were psyched up for a fight. They were going to go to war, uh, and they did not take it kindly that they were sent home. And so as they were going home, Second Chronicles 25 says that uh, they, they raided the, the Judean villages on their way back home, and they killed 3,000 people just on the way back to, to Israel. And those would have probably been mostly women, children, and elderly, since all the the men were off to war. Uh, So you can imagine Amaziah goes home from from war with the Edomites, goes home and finds his own villages in Judah burned to the ground and 3,000 people having been killed. That's what provokes this fight. He, He says to Jehoash, come let us look one another in the face, and everyone knows why why this is happening. Uh, But here's the thing. Whether or not he had a just cause, which he certainly did, it was a foolish fight 
because it was a fight that he couldn't possibly win. It's one thing to beat Edom at this time. It's quite another to beat Israel. Israel at this time was much larger, much more powerful than Judah. And that's what Jehoash communicates in this, in this cute little fable that he tells in verse 9. He says, A thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon. You, you can f- determine for yourselves who's who. And he says, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. And then a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. There's his little story. And he gives the moral to the story. You have indeed struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory. Stay at home, for why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? You get the story. In other words, you're a little thistle. I'm a great cedar. You better stay home. You had a nice little victory there with the the Edomites. Enjoy it. Throw a party. Pat yourself on the back, but don't let it get to your head. Uh, That's the idea here. He's saying, you don't want this fight. Uh, It's not going to end well for you. I'm not going to start it, but if you're going to start it, I will most certainly finish it. Uh, Not exactly pacifying words uh, between these these two men, but it did communicate that Israel didn't want this fight and wasn't going to start the fight. But Amaziah failed to recognize, he, he didn't have the wisdom to recognize that justified or not, this was not a fight he was going to win. And therefore, not a fight he should have gotten himself into. Uh, so verse 11 tells us that Amaziah wouldn't listen, and he and Jehoash met in battle at, at Beth Shemesh. That's one of the guardian cities that protected uh, Jerusalem. And, and it says there, Judah was utterly defeated. Jehoash, in fact, uh, after raiding Beth Shemesh, went all the way to Jerusalem, broke down a big section of that, the wall in Jerusalem, and then raided the temple and raided the king's palace, and then took Amaziah captive along with a number of others, presumably from the royal family. And that's all you get to read about Amaziah's reign. Uh, there's victory over Edom, there's a shameful defeat against Israel, uh, and, and, and then he's taken captive. Now, it does uh, allude uh, towards the end of the chapter that at some point he was allowed to go back home. Uh, but by the time he did, he had lost all credibility in Judah, uh, such that they conspired against him in Jerusalem, so he had to flee to Lachish. There they caught up with him. There they assassinated him. By the time he's home, nobody has any faith in him anymore, such that they can get together a party to actually assassinate him. Now, there's a couple of interesting details still reading between the lines. Uh, one is, is the fact that if you crunch the numbers in, in terms of how long these different kings are reigning, Amaziah's son Azariah, uh, he's also called Uzziah, elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, he started reigning pretty much from the time that his father went into exile. So when Amaziah was taken away into exile in, Jude, in Israel, uh, he was essentially already deposed from the throne back in Jerusalem. They said, this guy's gone and we don't even want him back. We're just going to put his son on the throne already. Uh, and that, that further reinforces the theory that Uzziah may well have been involved in the assassination when Amaziah gets back. He was already reigning. Now his dad comes back, his discredited father, and, and there's a conspiracy. And Uzziah does nothing even to kill the assassins, suggests he was uh, behind that. Uh, the other interesting detail is that 
from the, the, the time that Jehoash sacked uh, Jerusalem, it seems that after that, Israel actually reigned over Jerusalem and, and, of course, Samaria. So the king of Israel has power now, not only over his country, but also over Uzziah, who's reigning in Jerusalem. He's in control of both countries, at least for a time. Uh, so, so verse 28 talks about how Jeroboam restored Israel from Damascus, way up in the north, that's, that's in Syria, so, so as far north as Damascus, all the way down to Hamath, to, or from Damascus in Hamath to Judah in Israel. So that's the borders of the northern kingdom extend all the way down to the bottom of Judah. Uh, so he's in control of both. Uh, so it probably was the case that Judah at that time was just regarded as a territory belonging to, to the king of Israel. So that's the reign of Amaziah. It starts out seemingly good with a great victory, but ends up so bad that Judah itself is subject to Israel. Now, what do you make of a story, of a history like that? Before we answer that, we also want to think about Jeroboam II for his part. Uh, this is the king now of, of Israel. Uh, that, th- he reigned the longest reign in the history of Israel, 41 years. And it was one of the most prosperous reigns. The borders are enlarged back to the way they were in Solomon's day. It was a prosperous time. Uh, geopolitically, you can, you can also sort of credit that to the fact that Assyria, way off in Babylon area, Assyria was on the rise. And so Syria, uh, north of Israel, had to deal with them leaving Israel time to expand its borders and and to enjoy some peace and prosperity. Uh, So Jeroboam reigns for 41 years in peace, prosperity, freedom, and success. How does that make sense? Amaziah does at least what's right, and it's an utter, absolute failure. And Jeroboam is an evil king who enjoys a long reign of peace. How does that make sense? Now, obviously, we can't operate out of the assumption, and we're not uh, working on the assumption that God will always reward faithfulness with long life. Scripture doesn't, doesn't teach that. Or that God will always punish evil with disaster in this life. And scripture doesn't teach that. But for the kings, that was the promise that God made to these kings. That if you are faithful, I will bless you. If you are unfaithful, I will curse you. Uh, it, That was the promise given to the kings. When you think about that, there's a few more clues you you do want to pay attention to. First of all, verse 3 says that Amaziah did not serve God with all his heart. He was not like David. There's actually a lot that's left out of this chapter that Chronicles brings in. Uh, For example, after he defeated Edom, he killed the 10,000, threw 10,000 more off the cliff. Uh, After he did that, he took back Edom's gods. Kings doesn't tell us that. But Chronicles tells us he he took back Edom's gods and set them up as his own gods and even made sacrifices to them. That was the practice of the kings of that day. They would have a a little personal god collection uh, where they collected all their enemies' gods, assuming that by collecting them you also gain uh, their their power. Uh, So he collected their gods and even worshipped them. 
Uh, In fact, Chronicles tells us a prophet of God even confronted him on that point, and he ordered the man to either shut up or be killed. And Kings doesn't tell us those details, though you would think those are pertinent details. Uh, I believe the reason for that is that the author of Kings wants us to recognize that what he's told us is already sufficient for understanding what happened to Amaziah. That half-heartedness, says he didn't serve God with all his heart, that half-heartedness is already sufficient to explain what happened to Amaziah. It's very easy for us when we see uh, him worshiping pagan gods for us then to say, well, okay, now I get it. Now it makes sense that he got killed. Uh, But Kings, the, the book of Kings, would have us focus on the fact that Amaziah's heart was not right with God and that that itself was sufficient to explain what happened. Uh, those problems are damning enough. Uh, So if we're going to take this chapter to heart, we want to spend some time thinking about what does it mean when it says in verse 3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. What was different about David his father? We all know that David was not a perfect king either. Uh, He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had Bathsheba's husband murdered afterwards to cover it up. And yet, all the way through 1 and 2 Samuel, which tells the story of the life of David, uh, you, you do hear one refrain. You know the expression. You've heard it. It says, he was a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. What that means is that David for all his faults, had a heart that was fundamentally oriented towards and fixated upon the purposes of God. Uh, He lived, to to use the, the wonderful Latin expression, he lived coram Deo, before the face of God. Uh, He lived in the presence of God. And and what that means is, though there were times that, yeah, he stepped away from the fear of God, and he stepped far away, yet the, the basic pattern of his life to which he always returned, the foundation for his life was the fear of God. Uh, He had a heart that at its core was oriented towards towards God. Uh, That's that's not only why David obeyed God, that's also why David repented when confronted by God. Because at his heart, he did still have a heart that was oriented towards God. Uh, To to use David's own words, he he himself said, the steadfast love of God is better than life itself. That was the pattern for David's life. Uh, You find that same pattern in in all of the Psalms that David wrote. Uh, Whether it's Psalms of praise, Psalms of lament, Psalms of crying out for help, you find that heart uh, that says, the steadfast love of God is the highest good for me. Uh, that, that's why also at the very end of David's life, you find him uh, doing, doing work for the temple. Uh, he, he knew that he himself was never even going to see the temple. Uh, he wasn't going to see it completed during his life, but he gave his last strength, his last energy to the construction of, of the temple. Uh, so you have a heart that from beginning to end is, is fundamentally oriented towards God. 
Uh, you know, we talk a lot about orientation in, in our day, uh, especially when it comes to sexual orientation. Uh, and the idea that, that's promulgated in our day is that your sexual orientation is, is a core part of who you are. That's, that's like the deepest part of, of who you are. Uh, but perhaps we should be talking about an even more and even more essential uh, and even more important and essential orientation, which is one's spiritual orientation. To what or to whom is the heart oriented? Is it to God or away from God? Well, in this regard, Amaziah is fundamentally different from his father or great-great-great-grandfather, David, who was devoted to God. Uh, you can do some things that are right and still not have a heart that is right with God. That was true of his father, Joash. Did many things right. Uh, he rebuked the priests who were stealing money from the temple and, and all that, and yet did not have a heart that was truly right with God. And, and here's the thing. A heart that is not wholly oriented towards God is a heart that is fundamentally blind in this world and exposed to follies and snares on every side. That's what ultimately happened to Solomon. Much wisdom and yet a heart that was not right with God and he was exposed and blind to follies that ultimately became his downfall. Uh, That's what happened to Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Uh, did many things right, but was foolish because his heart was not right with God. And that's what happened to so many kings in the line of Judah, including now Amaziah. When you don't have a heart that's oriented towards God, uh, you are exposed to follies. Uh, Again, compare this to the life of David. When you think of the life of David, one of the amazing things about David's life is that he had this almost uncanny ability to discern what does God want of me in this particular situation. Um, uh, One of the the best examples of this is, is how David somehow knew when to execute someone and when to hold back his hand from executing in ways that when you look at it, you think, how did David know that? Uh, For example, when Saul was hunting him down to murder him, David had many opportunities to kill Saul. David's own men uh, urged him, kill this man. He's evil and he's trying to kill you without cause. You have perfectly just cause to kill him. And David held back his hand because he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. You see something there with, this is the Lord's anointed, and my heart is devoted to the Lord. Second uh, Samuel 1, uh, this soldier comes to David bragging uh, about how he had killed Saul, and David has that soldier, that man, executed for killing the Lord's anointed. How did he know that was the right thing to do? Uh, 2 Samuel 3, David had the wisdom to recognize uh, that the general of his army, Joab, uh, was an evil man. And the general of Saul's army, the army that was trying to kill him, the general of that army, he had the wisdom to recognize, was a righteous man. And And so against his men, he refused to celebrate Abner's death, but mourned for him instead, uh, causing all of his men to be upset with him. Yet he did there what was right. 
Or one more example, if you remember when Absalom took the throne and, and sent David fleeing for his life, uh, as David was leaving Jerusalem, there was this man, Shimei, uh, who stood along the side of the road and was cursing David and his men. He was a relative of Saul, and he was cursing David and his men uh, and throwing dirt at them. Uh, and, and one of his soldiers, one of David's soldiers says, can we just go and cut that man's head off? Uh, And David says, no, leave him alone because perhaps it is the Lord who is calling upon him to curse me. David has this uncanny ability to say, maybe the Lord's hand is behind this. Why is that? Well, David could see through what, what may look like a chaotic history, a chaotic life. He could see through that to discern the hand and the will of God. Where does that kind of discernment come from? It comes from a heart that is constantly in communion with God. When one is in constant communion with God, one will see God's hand in the story of one's life. Where that communion does not exist, life will be chaotic, random, and full of snares and traps on every side. Uh, The kind of wisdom that can see through chaos and discern the hand of God is a a wisdom that in every other moment remains in communion with God. It's something that arises from that day-to-day fellowship with God that then enables us to see God's hand where others would not see it. That's what was absent in Amaziah. He did a lot of things right. He even followed the law of Moses in not having the the children of the assassins executed. But it wasn't the sort of wisdom that arose from a sweet fellowship with God. It was the sort of detached wisdom that knew what the law required, and so he knew how to follow that, but didn't have the ability to see God's hand in his life. Unless one's heart is fundamentally, and before everything else, oriented towards God, in communion with God, one may do many things right, but one will always stumble around, walking in darkness, missing the will of God and falling into one snare, one folly after another. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Without it, you may get things right, but you will get many, many more things wrong. Uh, So, for example, when Amaziah won his victory against Edom, he should have, as David would have, recognized in that moment, this is a victory that was given to me by the Lord. Uh, Chronicles is very clear about that, that it was God who had promised him, I will give the Edomites into your hands. It was God who sent the Israelite mercenaries home, saying, you don't need them, because I will give you this victory. David in every one of his battles, saw that and praised the Lord for it. Amaziah lets it get to his head. He says, this was my victory. I did this. And that left Amaziah vulnerable to the next trap that's quickly coming his way. Uh, as Proverbs 16 says, pride comes before the fall. Uh, one more thing on that. Uh, there's actually a very important clue in our text that we might, we might very easily miss, but that the author leaves to the reader who's paying close attention to the story. Uh, 
Everywhere else in this chapter, Jehoash king of Israel is simply called that. Jehoash king of Israel, or sometimes Jehoash son of Jehoahaz king of Israel. But in verse 8, when Amaziah sends his invitation to battle to King Jehoash, look at how he is how King Jehoash is described. It, it, it takes the time to, to draw out a little genealogy here. Uh, it says, Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, the king of Israel. Why? Why that little mini genealogy? Well, because the reader who's paying attention to what has come before, all the way back in chapter 9 and, and 10, uh, will remember God once spoke through his prophets to Jehu in chapter 10, verse 30. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you've done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation will sit on the throne of Israel. So we read here, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu. How many generations? Only three. Someone like David, who would have had his heart oriented to the purposes of God, his ears attuned to the words of God, would have recognized this man is only third, and God said there before, and would have then refrained from battle. Uh, Amaziah should have known it. The kings of Israel were well aware of what God had spoken through the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, as well as the other prophets. Amaziah ought to have recognized that just like David, he was dealing, as much as the man was evil, he was dealing with the Lord's anointed. Because as evil as Jehoash was, he was the Lord's anointed. For all of his faults, and they were many, he was on the throne under the protection of the word of God. That's a very subtle point to pick up, unless, like David, you've been paying attention to the word of God. It's hard to blame Amaziah. Jehoash was an evil king. His army had just raped and pillaged Dozens of villages in Judah. Uh, He had killed 3,000 innocent civilians. Uh, He deserved justice. You can sympathize with Amaziah's cause. But if you go back to the story of David, you could sympathize with his cause as well. Uh, David had just cause to kill Saul. Uh, Saul had committed gross atrocities. If you remember uh, from 1 Samuel 22, when Saul discovered that one of the priests in the city of Nob had helped David as David was fleeing uh, from, from him, he ended up killing 85 priests and then, and then went on to kill every man, woman, and child in the city of Nob. Saul was an evil king too. And yet David held back his hand because he saw in Saul the Lord's anointed. Uh, His heart was, before everything else, attuned to the will and the word of God. Uh, In fact, if you read uh, Psalm 52, that's the psalm that David wrote in response to the slaughter of the people of Nob. And there too, he expresses the terrible tension he felt uh, considering the evil that that this man had done and yet knowing it's not not my job to kill this man. Well, Amaziah then did many things right, but he stumbled into the trap of pride because he had failed to see the word of God and the will of God in his life. 
And so we come back then to our thesis statement. Tune your heart to the Word of God, and you will see the hand of God and the will of God in your life. Fail to do so, and you'll do many things right, uh, but you will stumble around. Life will be infinitely complex, confusing, chaotic, random, and you will be ensnared by follies on every side. The only path to wisdom, the only way to a straight path, to use the language of Proverbs, is the fear of the Lord. Now, what about Jeroboam the second? Uh, he, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and yet he did not seem to stumble. The Lord blessed his reign. Well, what happened there then? Our text actually makes it very clear. Uh, it says his success was not his doing, but it was the Lord's doing in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Jonah, the son of Amittai. Uh, Why? It says because God had pity on his people, because he saw how bitter their affliction was. Again, that's the same language. We saw this last time as well. It's the same language that God used uh, for his people in Exodus, when God had had pity on his people uh, under the, the reign of Pharaoh in Egypt. So here's the, here's the reality. Amaziah stumbled into defeat. But Jeroboam stumbled right through success to what will be an ultimate defeat. Uh, he never realized that even the success that was given was given by the Lord's grace and was given so that he would repent. And he never repented. This chapter is, in fact, the last good time for Israel, for the northern kingdom. In 60 short years, Israel is going to be dragged off into exile. It was, at this point, right around the corner. It was that sunny last October, right before the winter really comes. And Jeroboam II never had the eyes to see it. He figured things are just going to stay prosperous and wonderful like they are. So he never repented. He never did anything about the evil that he himself had done or that his people were doing. Uh, He figured his success was due to his skill, his might, and his wisdom. In that way, he's a lot like Amaziah. He fails to see the hand of God. He never saw God's blessing because he wasn't listening to God's word. And that means it was a blessing that was very quickly coming to an end. Uh, Psalm 73, uh, verse 18 says, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And brothers and sisters, never mistake God's patience for God's pleasure. Never make that mistake. Never assume that God's blessing automatically implies God's favor. Make sure that you are listening to and obeying the Word of God while you are still on earth. Tune your heart to the Word of God. Uh, Amaziah is a disappointing king. Jeroboam II is an absolutely foolish king who despised God's blessings, who took them for granted, and headed himself and his entire nation into ruin. Now, as we look at these two kings, there is another message we want to remember here in Kings. Uh, For every disappointment, there's another reminder, we're still waiting 
for the king that God would send. Half-heartedness combined with foolishness uh, almost at this point seems to be a genetic defect in the line of David. You get it with almost every king. He didn't do what was right with all his heart like David, his father. And so this chapter also looks forward and reminds us that we still need that king uh, whose heart is even more than David wholly oriented to the word of God. So this chapter does direct us forward to Jesus Christ. In fact, it was written for that purpose before any other, that God's people would yearn for, long for, and pray for the coming of Jesus Christ. There is no hope but exile and failure for the people of God as long as they are under any other king but Jesus Christ. As long as they're under the leadership of men whose hearts are not attuned to the word of God, there will be defeat, there will be folly, there will be snares on every side. Uh, But Jesus Christ is the son of David who came to be the king that neither Amaziah nor his father Joash nor any of his fathers before him nor Rehoboam nor, nor Solomon nor even David could ever be, uh, who discerned the will of God perfectly in the most difficult situations. You might look at Jesus' life too and say, uh, was it not chaotic? Was it not meaningless? Did not the righteous man suffer? And yet there in Jesus Christ, you see the man whose heart is perfectly attuned to the will of God, who finds the blessing of God through obedience in the worst trials. Uh, He came to the cross. He humbled himself in obedience to God, even to the point of death, and then was raised to glory and exalted to the very throne of God. And he calls us then to listen to his word. Just as David was to have his heart attuned to the will of God, so you and I are to have our hearts attuned to the word of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus says in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Uh, Again, uh, in in John 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Hear the voice of Jesus Christ and you will live. Uh, Again, John 12, verse 46, he says, I've come into the world as as light. Jesus is our, our light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. What a contrast from the life of Amaziah. Though he did right in many things, yet he stumbled around in darkness. See the light of Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, tune your hearts to hear the words of Jesus Christ, to see the will of God in your life through Jesus Christ. Uh, Without that heart that is attuned to his word, your life will be infinitely confusing, complex, unpredictable, and full of snares. With that heart tuned to the will of Christ, you will hear the words of God, you will see the way of life even in the most unpredictable, chaotic, hard, broken situations. Do you want to be a man or woman after God's heart? Then begin by putting your faith and trust in the Savior whom God has sent. The fear of God truly is the beginning of wisdom. Always, it always was, it always will be. And the fear of God looks to the Word of God 
which has come to us perfectly in Jesus Christ. So every knee will one day bow to him. Let your knee be one that bows already now while here on earth. Amen.